morning we begin a new series of lessons, Always Be Ready, exploring what we believe and why we believe it. Over the next five Sundays, from now through Easter Sunday, we're going to examine the evidence for our faith. And specifically, we're going to examine evidence for God, evidence for Jesus, evidence for the Bible, evidence for Christianity, and then evidence for the resurrection. I think it's good for us to share a series of lessons like this every so often for a couple of reasons. First, for the yet to be convinced that we might provide evidence for what we believe and why we believe it so that you can choose to put your faith in Jesus Christ personally. And second, for the already convinced that we might provide evidence for what we believe and why we believe it, so that you might choose to confidently share your faith in Jesus Christ with others. So follow along in your Bible as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I've chosen our theme verse for this series to be 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 from the New Living Translation. Let's read it out loud together. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Don't miss those words. Always be ready. Hence the title of this sermon series, Always Be Ready. Simply put, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it so that when others ask us, we are prepared to explain to them the reasons for our faith. Jude put it this way in verse 3 of his epistle, I felt the necessity to urge you strenuously to defend the faith. I like that. We need to defend the faith. Have you ever served on a jury? Anybody? In our judicial system, jurors are carefully selected and are charged with the responsibility to weigh the evidence presented by both the prosecution and the defense and then to render a verdict of guilty or not guilty. Right after the prosecution and defense rest and before the case is turned over to the jury for deliberation, the judge always gives the jury clear instructions. And in those instructions, the judge reminds the jurors that it is their responsibility to sift through the evidence presented at the trial and to reach a decision that is beyond reasonable doubt. Notice the judge does not say beyond all doubt or beyond the shadow of a doubt. Rather, the judge tells the jury that they must be convinced, be convinced beyond reasonable doubt. To expect a verdict that is beyond any and all doubt is deemed by our judicial system to be unreasonable and unrealistic. Life just doesn't work that way. In our everyday lives, we often make decisions based on high probability. We seldom make decisions based on absolute certainty. For instance, if you board a flight from L.A. to New York, you have faith that you will arrive safely at your destination. You do not have absolute certainty, but based upon certain facts, you know there's a high probability that the airplane will get you from here to there. 
lot of things, however, that could disrupt that flight. Mechanical failure on the airplane, a blizzard on the ground in New York City that makes you have to land at another airport. You could be hijacked as you're going across the country. The plane could crash. Hmm. Except in the case of math and formal logic, pretty much everything in life must be negotiated on the basis of determining probability factors. Seldom do we have the luxury of making decisions based on absolute certainty. I mean, you weren't absolutely certain about your spouse on your wedding day. You aren't absolutely certain that your house is still going to be standing when you get home after today's service. Just ask the victims of the recent fires. You can't be absolutely certain that the lunch that you eat in just a little while won't be laced with food poisoning. Now, as you take your first bite, you'll go. <laughs> you see, all of us learn to live with a measure of uncertainty, and we grow accustomed to weighing evidence, considering data, and making decisions based upon high probability factors. That's just the way that life works. Now, I say all of this because it's extremely important as we approach this first lesson in this Always Be Ready series today, Evidence for God. It must be understood from the outset that insistence upon absolute proof of the existence of God is an unreasonable and unrealistic request to make. We don't even place that kind of responsibility in the jurors in our country's judicial system. Rather, what is reasonable and realistic is that enough evidence be presented for the existence of God in order to tip the scales of probability where a person can say, I am convinced beyond reasonable doubt that there is, in fact, a God. Or I'm sufficiently compelled by the facts and the evidence, the arguments, to the point where I must be true to my own mind, true to my mental faculties, and conclude that there is, in fact, a God. So with that in mind, let me share with you six reasons why I believe that we can be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of the existence of God. Evidence number one, cause and effect. Cause and effect, it's often called the cosmological argument, but don't let that big word scare you, simply comes from two words, cosmos, meaning world, and logos, meaning logic or reason. So when you put the two together, you end up with the logic or the reason for the world. In other words, who or what is responsible for the existence of the universe and everything that is in it? Or who or what is the cause that brought about this effect? There are only two possibilities. Let me explain. Hang in there with me on this. Let's draw a circle around everything that exists in the universe. The earth, the galaxies, the plants and animals, the birds and fish, the people, everything that exists. Now everything in the universe is inside the circle, and everything inside that circle is contingent. That is, all things are interdependent upon other things in the universe for their existence, and all things are in a gradual state of entropy, slowly headed toward non-existence. The question is, who or what is responsible for the existence of all this contingent stuff in the first place? Again, there are only two possibilities. First, the ultimate cause might be inside the circle. And second, the ultimate cause might be outside 
the circle. Which possibility makes the most sense? Well, if everything inside the circle is dependent upon other things that are inside the circle, how rational is it to locate the ultimate cause inside the circle? It just doesn't make sense that something that's contingent upon something else for its existence could be responsible for the existence of everything else. I mean, doesn't a thinking person have to conclude that everything inside the circle must find its ultimate cause outside the circle. And by deduction, whatever is outside the circle must be non-contingent, self-caused, self-reliant, and independent, which means that it would be eternal, unlimited, and all-powerful. And doesn't that sound dangerously close to a definition for God? That's why Isaiah cries out in Isaiah chapter 40, Who else has held the heavens in his hands and measured off the heavens with his ruler? Who else knows the weight of all the earth and weighs the mountains and the hills? Who, how can we describe God? With what can we compare Him? Are you so ignorant? Have you never understood? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. Don't miss that last sentence. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. You see, God himself is outside the circle. He's the ultimate cause of all that exists inside the circle. It's the only possibility that really makes any sense at all. And over the centuries, thousands of people have wrestled with this cosmological argument for the existence of God. People have dissected it and debated it and lost sleep over it. Why? Because it makes logical, rational sense. Many people have concluded that it's a powerful argument for the existence of an eternal, all-powerful being. Cause and effect. Evidence number two, order and design. Order and design. It's often called the teleological argument. Again, don't let that word frighten you. It comes from two words, telos, meaning the end or finish, and logos, meaning logic or reason. When you put the two together, you have the logic or reason for the end or finish. In other words, who or what is responsible for all the order and design of this universe? How can we explain the intricacies, the complexities, the symmetries, and the incredible coordination of all the objects and the things around us? Philosopher William Paley wrote, there simply cannot be a design without a designer. Simply put, the teleological argument challenges the theory that everything in this ordered universe came into existence by sheer chance. The so-called Big Bang theory, in essence, says that a chance collision of floating gases out in space set in motion a random series of events that over billions and billions of years finally brought us to the complex state where the universe is today. However, proponents of this theory can never adequately explain where the mysterious floating gases came from in the first place. And many of them are outright embarrassed at the mathematical improbability of a chance collision of floating gases even producing a single molecule, not to mention a process as complex as photosynthesis or the phenomenon as breathtaking as an eagle in flight. The teleological argument says that random chance explanation for the complexity of this world is highly, highly, in fact, so highly unlikely that it's improbable, if not impossible. It says that whenever and wherever there's order and design, reasonably people know that there is someone responsible for that design. By the way, we're running uh, this... PowerPoint and all the videos and everything that you see on the screens, we're running that off of my laptop. 
Let me tell you the story about my laptop. Did you know where that laptop came from? There was an explosion in a steel factory back in Pennsylvania. And when they were digging through the rubble of that explosion, they came across my laptop. There it was, complete, just exactly as it is right now. And I heard about it and I ordered it and I got it. And that's where my laptop came from. You believe that? You'd be more likely to believe, if I told you the story, that some people at Apple, who are pretty well-known and, and well-skilled at this kind of thing, got together, designed this thing, and they put it together piece by piece, and now I have this functional laptop that we're enjoying the benefits of this morning because of the order and the design of those who designed it and built it, right? In his book, Origin of Species, Darwin himself said, to suppose the I with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. <laughs> now that's one thing that Darwin wrote that I agree with wholeheartedly. Only a creator, a master designer, can explain the design we see in the human eye, or the instinct of a homing pigeon, or the web-spinning ability of a spider, or the miracle of a newborn baby. As has been said by many clear-thinking people, much more faith, quote-unquote, is required to attribute the wonders of our world to the chance explosion of floating gases than to accept the existence of an eternal, intelligent, all-powerful designer, God. Let's read Romans 1, verses 19 and 20 out loud together. Would you read this with me? The truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power. So they will have no excuse when they stand before God at judgment day. Order and design. Evidence number three, right and wrong. Right and wrong. This is often called the moral argument. It asks the question, how does one account for the fact that in human beings everywhere worldwide, there's a moral code that provides them with an inner sense of right and wrong? If human beings merely originated from primeval gases, if they are merely the product of billions of years of evolution, how does one account for the fact that in every culture on the planet, people value truthfulness over deceitfulness, kindness over cruelty, loyalty over betrayal. How do you explain that? Are gases and genes capable of implanting a moral code of values in the hearts and minds of people worldwide? I was listening the other day to an atheist who was very strong about, oh, I'm an atheist, you know, and he was arguing for the cause of saving the whales. Or, or I heard somebody else not too long ago talking about help the homeless. Now the atheist does not believe that he or she is a created being fashioned in the image of God, that we do not have a moral code stamped upon our hearts by a supreme moral being. And yet, on the other hand, the atheist is appealing to the universal code of right or wrong to stop the tragic extermination of whales or to awaken people to the plight of the homeless. And the irony of all that is that how can he or she appeal to this sense of right and wrong without first taking the time to explain the origin of this sense of right and wrong? 
The Apostle Paul refers to this moral argument in Romans chapter 2. He says, When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes or no, right and wrong. You see, the only logical, rational explanation for this inner sense of right and wrong in our hearts and minds as human beings is the existence of a moral God who planted it there in the first place. Evidence number four. Jot and tittle. (laughs) Jot and tittle. This is commonly referred to as the biblical argument. It says, in essence, that the reliability and the durability of the Bible... The timeless universal influence of Scripture is evidence of the existence of an eternal author, God. Let's read what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 and verse 18 out loud together. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. The smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. The King James Version uses the terms jot and tittle. It's a term to describe the small breath strokes or punctuation marks used in Hebrew writing. In other words, the Bible will stand the test of time and opposition down to the minutest detail. Psalm 119 verse 89 tells us, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm. 1 Peter 1 verses 24 and 25 puts it this way, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now we're going to talk about a little more about the evidence of the, for the Bible in a couple of weeks. But for today's lesson, let me just point out that the Bible has demonstrated itself to be much more than a mere book. It has the fingerprints of God all over it. It has the DNA of God all through it. With its fulfilled prophecy, historical accuracy, and timeless relevancy, it is obviously not the product of a human being. It must be the product of a divine being. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2 and verse 21, The main thing to keep in mind here is that no scripture is a matter of private opinion. Why? Because it's not concocted in the human heart. It resulted when the Holy Spirit prompted men and women to speak God's word. Here's the bottom line. The existence of the Bible itself points to the existence of God himself. Jot and tittle. Evidence number five, flesh and bone. Flesh and bone. We could call this the incarnational argument. Simply put, another reason we can know beyond reasonable doubt that God exists is that he lived in flesh and bone among us. The incarnation. God became man in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 puts it this way. Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. And Christ became as a human being and lived here on earth among us. Instead of humankind reaching up to God, God reached down to 
humankind. In his book, The Christian in Philosophy, Casserly writes, the gospel provides that knowledge of ultimate truth which men have sought through philosophy in vain, inevitably in vain, because it is essential to the very nature of God that he cannot be discovered by searching and probing of human minds, that he can only be known if he first takes the initiative and reveals himself. And that's just what he did. He revealed himself to us in flesh and bone. We'll talk more next Sunday about evidence for Jesus. But for today's lesson, let me just point out that the existence of Jesus himself lends evidence to the existence of God himself. Or in Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In essence, this incarnational argument says that God came to this earth and lived among us as a human being. It was as though he was saying to us, hello, <laughs> I'm real, here I am, believe in me, flesh and bone. Evidence number six, observation and experience. Observation and experience. This is commonly referred to as the empirical argument. Another big word I know, once again, it's a compound word, in meaning in, and pyra meaning trial. You put the two together, it simply means in trial or experience. In other words, this argument for the existence of God is from the personal observation and experience of God in one's own life. And although this argument is not conclusive in and of itself, philosopher William Alston wrote, Christian experiences such as feeling the presence of God or receiving a sense of guidance from God or feeling strengthened by God, all of that combines to make us even more confident in our belief once we come to that conclusion. Ron Nash goes as far as to say religious experiences must be taken very seriously as evidence for the existence of God, providing that the person making the experiential claim is widely known to be a trustworthy person. What he's driving at is that thousands and thousands of intelligent, well-respected, highly influential people all over the world claim that they are regularly experiencing a relationship with God. They testify to feeling loved by God. They claim that they have received forgiveness from God, that he has unshackled them from bounds that had held them most of their lives. They acknowledge being heard by God through answered prayer. God has transformed their lives, and that cannot be dismissed. That's not to say that an occasionally highly delusional person doesn't manufacture religious experience for a variety of reasons, but that should not discount the testimony of someone with integrity who regularly bears witness to an experience of God in his or her life. Christians all over the world would gladly take polygraph tests to prove the reality of those unforgettable moments when God makes himself known through experience. I mean, how should we account for all those claims? Are hundreds of millions of people hallucinating? <laughs> Are they lying? Are they part of a well-organized conspiracy? Hardly. They simply know from personal experience that God exists, and they are glad to testify about it. Look at David's personal testimony in Psalm chapter 40. He says, He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out from the bog and mire, and set my feet on a hard, firm path, and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing of praises to our God. Now many will hear of the glorious things He did for me, and stand in awe before the Lord, and put their trust in Him. 
this empirical argument simply says, when you've considered the cosmological, teleological, moral, biblical, and incarnational arguments for the existence of God, tack onto the end of that those arguments the fact that millions of credible people all over the world are claiming to have a personal daily relationship with God. And that just affirms the other evidence. Observation and experience. Always be ready. This morning we've taken a look at evidence for God. Six reasons that we can know beyond reasonable doubt that there is a God. First, cause and effect, the cosmological argument. Who or what is the ultimate cause of the contingent things inside the circle of the universe? Second, order and design, the teleological argument. Who or what is responsible for the complex order and design of this universe? Third, right and wrong, the moral argument. Why is there a universal sense of right and wrong in people? Fourth, jot and tittle, the biblical argument. Who or what is behind the timeless influence of the Bible? Fifth, flesh and bone, the incarnational argument. What does the incarnation of Jesus Christ tell us about God? And sixth, observation and experience. The empirical argument. How is it that millions of people claim to experience God on a daily basis? The only rational and logical answer to these questions is there is a God, an eternal, all-powerful creator, the master designer of this complex universe, the source of the moral code written in our hearts, the author of the Bible, the one who became human for our sake and who is capable of regularly connecting with his creation. You and me. Let's close by reading Psalm 14 and verse 1 out loud together. Would you read this with me? Only fools say in their heart, there is no God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are not only real, but you are relevant. that you are involved intimately in the details of our everyday lives. We can have faith in you, not only that you exist, but in, in you as a person, in your character, in your nature. You are unfailing in your love. Your faithfulness never changes. You are God. And there is no other beside you. And oh God, would we now place our faith wholly and completely and without hesitation and without compromise in you and in you alone. I would pray for anyone who might be listening to this message right now who does not know you personally. That God, you would draw them to yourself. That you would love them and woo them. That their eyes would be open to know you. Thank you that you even make that possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did for us. And we pray it in His mighty and matchless name. And everyone said,
Amen.